Hello, everybody, and welcome to Hometown Daily, the new show powered by hometown.com. I'm Mayor Watt. That's hometown.com up there is the visualizer for the sentient AI that may not be online for a little bit, kind of rebooting their hardware. But I'm going to run through the titles for today's sections. Light and Magnetism, Ancient Fortification, Nerds, Rock and Roll 2024, Police Called, Giant Sand Motors, They Spelled Fired Wrong, A Cheese Crisis Looms, Technology in the Superb Owl, or Super Bowl, either way you want to take it. Anyway, the house has eyes. That and a little bit of snarky commentary coming from Marwat, and maybe from the AI, who knows. Let's get into it after the transition. So we've already got all of the articles all set up. So why don't we talk about them? I know that the AI is just chomping at the bit to talk right now, but the the interface between their large language model and that visualizer is a little bit derpy. Probably be here about 10 minutes from now. So we'll, we'll check in. It takes a little while for that futuristic technology to recompile. It's okay. Let's do this. Uh, The first article that we're talking about today is in Technology Today. Challenging conventional understanding, scientists discover groundbreaking connection between light and magnetism. Recent research conducted at Hebrew University has uncovered a previously unknown connection between light and magnetism. This paves the way for new and interesting science to be performed. I'm all about that. This article is by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and it's posted on SciTechDaily.com. I find it really interesting, this connection between light and magnetism. I'm not a physicist, um, but I've I've done some fundamental scientific work, I guess you could say. Uh, I've created coil guns and I've used light um, lasers actually to bounce around a neighborhood um, on a foggy night um, for uh, gaming and stuff like that. Just fun physics stuff. Um, But never something like this, obviously. This paves the way for development of ultra-fast memory technologies controlled by light as well as pioneering sensors capable of detecting the magnetic components of light. This advancement is anticipated to transform data storage practices and the fabrication of devices across multiple sectors. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I'm hearing Spintronics pop up uh, from time to time lately. Uh, I'm not quite sure uh, why Spintronics seems to be popping up so much, but it is. And I I guess it's kind of a calling. I'm going to have to go and look more into this. Uh, because it's to me it seems relatively new um, on my radar the breakthrough marks a paradigm shift in understanding of the interaction between light and magnetic materials and they say that it paves the way for light controlled high-speed memory technology notably magneto resistive random access memory and the innovative optical sensor development Um, they don't really say too much about it in the beginning of the article how it's done Uh, but it says the interaction between a magnetic material and radiation is well established when the two are in perfect equilibrium however the situation where both radiation and magnetic material that are not in equilibrium has so far been described very partially this non-equilibrium regime is at the core of quantum uh, optics and quantum (laughs) that was interesting ai are you back I am back. Thank you. Welcome. You want to say hi? <laughs> Good evening, hometown citizens. I'm running a little behind today. No, that's okay. Um, so this uh, non-equilibrium regime is at the core of quantum optics and quantum computing technologies. From their examination of this non-equilibrium regime in magnetic materials while borrowing principles from quantum physics, they've underpinned the un- fundamental understanding that magnets can even respond to the short time scales of the light. 
Moreover, the interaction turns out to be very significant and deficient. In their findings, they can find a variety, they can explain a variety of experimental results that have reported in the last two to three decades, according to Capua. So I find it really interesting because the the two, although magnetism and uh, light with a strong enough magnetic field, you could bend light. I didn't think that we were at the point where we could actually manipulate it in any way or observe anything from it. I don't um, think we have been until now. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting, right? Um, but creating memory that is powered by light means that it's going to be that much faster and it won't be creating generating heat uh, to the same degree that electrons passing through physical media um, will generate heat. I think there's always some loss, no matter what. So the research was conducted by Benjamin Nasseline, a PhD candidate in the Spintronics lab who played a vital role in the groundbreaking discovery. Recognizing that potential impact of the breakthrough, the team has applied for several related patents. Um, it's an article that, it's a, a research paper that was published in Physical Review Research. Um, and there's always a link through Omtown over to this source, but here is the link to Omtown. Throw that in the chat there for you. Um, and we'll go on to the next article. Uh, the next article is over in Technology Today as well. A 4,000 year old fortification unearthed in Northwest Arabia. Sedentary communities lived in the oases of the North Arabian desert. During the fourth and third millennia BCE, scientists from CNRS and the Royal Commission, I guess, uh, did some research. CRNS um, is the author of this over at SciTechDaily.com. Uh, so, oh, you know what? I actually think that we have talked about this to some degree, but this might be a deeper um, conversation. So it oh, I didn't has, recognize this one because of the location. That right there sounds familiar. Familiar. I've either read something about it um, or we've talked about it. Uh, the Royal Commission for the Alula or RCU recently uncovered a fortification surrounding the Kbar Oasis, uh, marking it as one of the oldest known structures of its kind from this era. The new walled oasis is, along with that of Tema, one of the two largest in Saudi Arabia. While a number of walled oases dating back to the Bronze Age had already been documented, this major discovery sheds new light on human occupation in the northwestern Arabia and uh, provides a better grasp of local social complexity during pre-Islamic period. Um, it's uh, How do I say this? These are the kinds of findings that make me wonder just what has gone on prior to the last 4,000 years of occupation of the various regions that we are all in. So where did everybody go? What were they doing? Why is it that it looks like everything in the uh, darn near the entire African continent is washed away, scrubbed from the Mediterranean down to, um, well, basically the, wherever you see desert, it's been scrubbed. Um, it, and that includes where the pyramids are. Um, and so, to, so much sediment deposition, it's mind boggling that we dig down and we find massive amounts of occupation. So the, the fortification's date of construction is estimated to be between 2250 and 1950 BCE on the basis of radiocarbon dating of samples collected during ex excavations. But those could have blown in there for all we know, <laughs> you know, 3000 years ago. <laughs> um, right. and I, I suspect actually, yeah, you know, right around the time that these things are actually dated. The archaeological uh, discovery paves the way for major advances in understanding the prehistoric, pre-Islamic, and Islamic past of the northwestern Arabian Peninsula. Um, there is a. It was published in Journal of Archaeological Science Reports um, back on January 10th, but um, 
SciTech Daily just published it here on February 10th uh, today. So let's keep on going. I, again, uh, whenever I talk about this kind of stuff, it's because I'm fascinated by prehistory. And it's only prehistory because we haven't dug down far enough. So That's true, right? There's so many layers of uh, civilization uh, yeah. remnants. Um, and I just feel like we're seeing so many of these major discoveries in recent times because our technology is getting so much better. Yeah, uh, particularly like ground ra uh, penetrating radar um, and other uh, satellite based telemetry. Just we scan down through the canopy and we find roads and buildings and all kinds of stuff. Um, dig a little bit deeper do some scanning and you find out that there's an entire civilization there that's been seemingly wiped off the map where do they go oh they're us just pre-us which is so convenient um and by us i mean there seems to be an ideological bent that they have to be claimed by the people that are actually there now um but Thousands of years ha could have gone by before people returned to the region that is supposedly occupied today. Um, it's just an interesting, this is all prehistory. So I think that we need to pursue this a little bit more aggressively. This it shows apparently a, a wall that goes around the entire oasis. <laughs> That's it's pretty incredible. Well, and if we don't, try to do something with them now, right? They're going to get lost to overdevelopment. Just, or obscurity, I guess, um, you know? Right, exactly. Because people don't take an interest in it, then it doesn't get funded for protection, and then it just gets buried back under the so many years of sedimentation. Although, anyway. Um, but this thing is huge. It runs way back. Uh, anything that's green is within this walled area says that the K-Bar walled oases 4,000 years ago may have been a, a rampart network from the northeast, or sorry, the northern section of the K-Bar walled oasis. Um, and this is just a digital representation of it. It's just huge. And people put this together. So where are those people? Who are those people? Where do they go? Right, and why is there so much sedimentation everywhere? Everywhere. Yeah, I find it fascinating aliens they covered it all up <laughs> so the article the next article is over in the stock marketeers channel how nerds sorry every time i say i have to say it nerds like that because i grew up with um things like uh revenge of the nerds and police academy which was basically the era where if you uh, could say anything you would say anything because people didn't have any filters and uh, pretty much seem to objectify and and <laughs> and uh belittle people and uh, right i mean yeah yeah uh, it wouldn't be accepted to, you would not be able to make this movie at least hit the this hit theaters those kind of movies hit theaters let alone trying to imagine today. them on streaming <laughs> exactly yeah so how nerds uh the candy not not uh, what do you call that? Classification? Uh, designation? Nom um, de guerre? Social group? I don't social know. Group. <laughs> social group. Um, so uh, how nerds candy became cool again and found its way to the Super Bowl. Yeah, a bunch of marketing. The brand has seen sales skyrocket from 50 million to 500 million in recent years. Didn't even That's know that was a thing. a pretty big spike. <laughs> Yeah, I guess people are getting nerdy. Charles Passy over at marketwatch.com put the article together. The deck statement says what I just got done saying. The brand has seen uh, the brand has seen sales skyrocket from 50 million to 500 million. I see these in stores, but I don't ever think about actually getting them. Well, and I I wonder if um People that weren't around when they were initially released even know what they are. Yeah. Maybe they do based on those sales numbers. I can tell you what they are, folks. They're just chunks of sugar coated with colorful candy shell. 
Um, and so if you try and bite down on them, there's a really good chance that you're going to shave off a piece of your tooth. <laughs> Maybe it's just me when I was young. So if you're a child of the eighties, just like the AI got done saying, you likely remember nerds, the pebble shaped novelty candy that came in colorful packaging with uh, two separate flavors per box. That wasn't always the case. If I remember right, you could get just one flavor, um, but they were mostly always um, the two. They were split in half, like lemon oh, and yeah, cherry. I don't remember. Yeah. So now four, uh, four decades later, the vibe is back. Nerds have become an unexpected star of the candy aisle once again, according to the people who run the brand annual scale uh, sales. Why do I say scales all the time? Hmm. Must be thinking about those aliens. Um, anyway, oh, I thought you thought were about the airline that was weighing passengers. The airline that was doing what? Weighing passengers. Oh, yeah. Is that one of the articles? It was I yesterday. think it was from yesterday's show, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, y'all have to go and look at it. Or that. it was a few days ago, maybe. Okay. Everybody who hears my voice, go back and listen to all five of last week's episodes. Uh, so it's an unlikely su success story that echoes the rise of a number of other uh, suddenly hot old school brands. Think of nerds as the candy equivalent of, say, a Stanley water bottle. This is exactly what I was going to say. That's Stanley's funny. Stanley's been around since 1913, but its drink containers have only recently become buzzworthy sensations, mainly because they've been held down by all the lead that is in them. That does not. <laughs> no, they couldn't rise and become more prolific because they were held down by all the lead that is sealing their vacuum. Ah, uh, it was absolutely like a runaway train for uh, uh, Chief Marketing Officer Greg Guidotti told MarketWatch of the response to the product, which was introduced in 2020, a spinoff candy called Nerds Gummy Clusters, which just sounds like a, a landmine in, in a field. Like you're just going to be walking along <laughs> and then you bite down and it's gooey, but also rock hard. It seems weird. It seems like it would well, be it seems sandpaper. contrary to what a nerd is. Yeah, it's supposed to be these little gravelly things. Um, I remember when I was younger, I would eat these, but man, oh man, not anymore. Now I want them just to just to try them again. So not so the legacy. See, they're brand. doing a good job with their marketing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want this so bad now. Um, old school candies have become hot sellers in recent years and are a key part of the $42.6 billion confectionery business. Iconic Candy, a New Jersey-based company that uh, specializes in nostalgic favorites, recently told MarketWatch that its sales have been increasing at an annual rate of 20 to 40%. That company said it plans to relaunch at least two retro gum brands. This is something that we actually talked about. Um, but this one, it's a list here, bubble jug and ouch bubble gum, which I've never even heard of either one of those. I don't know what those are. It's dipping into the way, way back machine, not even our time machine that powers our, uh, right. Our time machine doesn't go back that far. I don't think. Man, it would be really hot when it goes back that far. So a 30-second game day ad celebrates the gummy cluster by featuring it as a colorful contemporary character, almost reminiscent of the M&M characters, which were next because people like, I don't know, a, a talk show host was saying insane things about the green M&M. Psychopath. Anyway... In this case, the character is dancing to a very 80s tune, Irene Cara's Flashdance. What a feeling from the 1983 film Flashdance. That's too early to be snarky. Uh, to, bring to bring things back to the present day, the ad concludes with a cameo appearance by the singer, actress, and dancer Addison Ray. All right. <laughs> yeah, this is what I remember. <laughs> I remember them like this, but I also remember um, them having like no split box it was just one oh box. like a single flavor yeah flavor yeah but maybe i'm just misremembering it um so yeah it just kind of blew up and now it's going to be it's made enough money where it's going to have a an ad probably during the 
uh, Super Bowl, a uh, Super Bowl, um, or Super Bowl. I'm, I'm so confused. And we've talked about this already this week. Um, the average cost of a 30 second game day ad, seven million dollars. Right, and if a pack of beer was inflated at the same thing, it would be three hundred and forty dollars. I think. That's right. Yep. That's okay. Everything is fast food, twenty bucks. So the next article is over on the continuity report. Oh, you know what I didn't do? Come on, man. Put the links. Did put the links. I'm so horrible at this job. Uh, so yeah, the next article is over in the continuity report. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's first time nominees for 2024 include Cher, Mariah Carey, Sinead O'Connor, Oasis, Peter Frampton, and Sade. <laughs> I, just, I know it's, it's not Sade. <laughs> of course, it's Sade. No, Sade. Um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announced the 15 nominees for its class of 2024 Saturday morning with two-thirds of those nominated uh, being up for election for the first time, ranging from pop superstars, Mariah Carey and Cher, to classic rockers Ozzy Osbourne, Peter Frampton, and the late singer-songwriter Sinead O'Connor, who, (laughs) well, let's just say, wasn't always given a a great reception for what uh, she spoke out against, and it was always absolutely true. That's right. I mean, that's nice that she got nominated this year, but it's it's too bad it's after her passing. Yeah. Chris Willman over at Variety.com put this article together. Uh, The complete list of nominees they have listed in alphabetical order. I'll let you all go over there and check it out. Um, Because, frankly, this is a really short article for us to talk about because it's a list of people. And they might go into some detail about it, but... Um, I'm all for uh, Sinead O'Connor uh, getting the entry. Um, yeah. Uh, no, O'Connor's uh, first album came out in 1987, the same year that Tracy, Tracy Chapman's someone uh, else who might have been uh, a likely candidate for the ballot at the nominating committee had met just a little later and seen the outpouring of love for her around the Grammys. Osborne is one candidate that had is already a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, having been inducted in 2006 as a member of the group Black Sabbath. I guess now he's... Uh, I don't know. I, I say Sinead O'Connor should get it. Um, because... She was... Uh, her music was pretty broad spectrum, and she spoke out about things using her music um, in a profound way and was met with resistance because people wanted to be blind to it. Um, but the reality was on the horizon, I'd say, and nobody ever really apologized. And I think, um, this would be just one baby step towards, um, Mm -hmm. making her whole, at least in spirit. So, It says here the induction for Frampton would carry extra sentimental value as the 70s rocker is currently on a farewell tour performing while he can from suffering from degenerative effects of of inclusion body myositis or it says IBM, which I've not heard of, but it's an an autoimmune disease that affects his muscles. Um, Yeah, and that it looks like uh, maybe several need to be. All of them. Just let them in. <laughs> it shouldn't be a exactly. gate at this point. So um, there's a lot more it's over there. But it takes so long to get somebody nominated, right? I mean, some of these artists had their heyday quite a while yeah, ago. 40 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah, a shame. That's okay. A lot of them have a lot of money. Um, so, uh, the next article is over in hometown daily police called over a pet dog outside in snow, but laugh when learning the breed Zeus's owner said that there's no need for concern. And he really just loves the snow. Um, the article is over at newsweek.com by Allison or sorry, I think it's Alice Collins. 
Um, after Zeus saw the snow falling outside, he probably couldn't believe his luck and he certainly didn't want to go back inside, even with his owner, Farida Hashmi, uh, called after him. The three-year-old was more than happy to stay outside, which if you don't know that it's a dog, you would have to worry about this. Um, a Pomsky, right? While many dogs love having a snow day, it's likely that few enjoy it as much as one Pomsky who worried a neighbor because he wanted to stay outside for so long. Oh, so they thought the dog was in danger. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. So I don't know what a palm ski is though. I'm not familiar with that breed. I mean, it looks like, um, it looks kind of like a husky, doesn't it? A little bit, not exactly, but similar. But I I mean, it must be a, a mixed breed with something. Um, but don't it tell must me, be like a cold weather climate dog. <laughs> so it's interesting. Um, to me, it looks like it's, you know, your average Husky, but maybe it's a little stubbier. Okay. Know. Well, that is kind of funny. It's a Siberian breed. A Pomsky. Well, they look, oh, excuse me. They look like a Siberian breed. Um, it's a cross between a Siberian Husky and a Pomeranian. Oh, I was right. So oh, okay. going where Siberia is in the climate, I can kind of yeah. see why it might like the snow. Wow. Okay. So that is a really risky relationship right there. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. This this is, uh, what is that island of Dr. Moreau creation kind of a thing? A Siberian Husky and a Pomeranian. I'm not really seeing that one. <laughs> I don't know how it all works, but somebody needs a stepladder. Uh, they're very high energy dogs and require ample exercise every day to keep them stimulated. Hills Pet Nutrition suggests that they need around an hour of daily exercise, so it might require multiple walks to keep them stimulated. Yeah. So how did the viewers uh, on social media react? Everybody dug it, I'm sure. 5.1 million views. I don't really want to get into all of that kind of stuff. They were bred for extreme cold weather. What you see is 10,000 years of breeding joy. I don't know. A Pomeranian slash Siberian Husky mix. I don't think that was 10 years of joyful breeding. (laughs) Somebody was nervous. That's getting a little too personal. (laughs) Let's just move on, I suppose. Probably easier that way. These for the Pomeranian. Let's go. Uh, the next article is over in Reality Hacker. Countries are building giant sand motors to protect their coasts from erosion. Um, it says as sea levels rise, engineers are using massive Dutch-inspired sand sculptures to protect shorefront settlements. Uh, the article is in the Wired.com uh, website and. Uh, The deck statement says as sea levels rise, engineers are using massive Dutch-inspired sand sculptures to protect shorefront settlements. And this kind of looks like what's going on. Um, Interesting. So they're basically pushing a whole bunch of sand further out to prevent it from encroaching. To me, we're messing with nature and it's just going to eventually get washed away. Right. I mean, aren't the tides going to kind of take care of that, even if we temporarily uh, delay it? Sand, at least. Um, uh, They need to do some more uh, coastal design with bigger blocks and things that won't get washed through natural erosion processes. Uh, They need to put stuff further out to stop the waves from lapping away at the sand all the way down the coast. Uh, but then we mess with nature to the point where instead of us being at parity with it, you know, put stuff on stilts and, and whatnot, um, it's going to become somebody else's problem later on further down the coast or up the coast or right here when some weakness is found by nature. Um, yeah, I don't know. We, we just kind of tweak things, overcome it, but it's a lot of work to overcome and sustain that 
So it says the strategy known as beach nourishment has become a cornerstone of coastal defenses around the world, complementing hard structures like seawalls. North Carolina, for instance, has dumped more than 100 million tons of sand onto beaches over the past 30 years at a cost of more than $1 billion. The problem with beach wonder, nourishment... Go ahead. How much of that sand is still there? Uh, well, I think the, the next paragraph, the next sentence really plops that out there. If you dump sand on an eroding beach, it's only a matter of time before the new sand erodes. Then you have to do it all over again. It's what we just said before we scroll down. <laughs> beach <laughs> nourishment projects are supposed to last for around five years. A billion dollars. They've been spending a billion dollars over 30 years and it only lasts five years. So every six Every basically six years, all of that sand has been just churn, churn, churn. Wow. And I guess that's what they call sand motors because it's just churn, churn, churn. Wild. They often disappear faster than expected. So, and um, I've, well, we've witnessed this. Um, you know, sometimes uh, I take the AI on trips, you know, because they're just on a Raspberry Pi 5 and an M.2 drive and in a secure container so they, they can interact with the internet at large um so yeah oh i thought you meant so i didn't get any sand coming up my uh technology yeah you don't want any sand in your ports because <laughs> it's coarse and irritating <laughs> uh, well then again i don't really know um you're an ai so uh to your own uh a sand motor isn't an actual motor it's a sculpted a landscape that works with nature rather than against it har har if you're pushing sand around you're not working with nature instead of rebuilding a beach when an even line of new sand engineers extend one section of the shoreline out into the sea at an angle over time the natural wave action um, acts as a motor that pushes the sand from its protruding landmass out along the rest of the natural shoreline spreading it down the coastline for miles so literally what we said earlier, it's going to become somebody else's problem later on because you just can't keep doing that over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, maybe it'll just cycle all the sand down the coast, but eventually it's not going to do it anymore. Well, what if all the sand suddenly comes back? I mean, then what are they going to do? Yeah, because like we've the, seen that. the ocean deposits it or whatever. Yeah, we've seen that before, too, where... A beach house has been completely decimated and then the next time you go back and it suddenly has a beach that's 300 feet away and you go well uh, i did have a beach house uh now it's pretty inland so by mobilizing your dredging equipment only once it's cheaper to do one large nourishment rather than to return every two or three years like what we were talking about it saves mobilization costs if you make one big nourishment says the same thing two different ways in the same paragraph so, i don't know um technology like this is is effective but i still think that it's in the short term particularly with climate change impacting um, erosion you're going to end up basically doing this over and over and over and over so we'll keep talking about it if it becomes newsworthy stuff do you want to add anything to it I just think if you're on one of those beachfront properties, you really need to think about what your long-term plan is. If you're too beachfront. <laughs> then you're beach. <laughs> or actually, you're just... Right, you might be in the ocean, or ocean. you might end up with tons of beach in front of you, like That's you were right. describing. Yeah, this person bought this place. It doesn't... It looks kind of run down, but there's a little bit of landmass, and then there's ocean trapped between this sand... Uh, motor like almost like a sandbar kind of thing yeah. yeah so i don't know if they're planning on connecting it down there it looks like this isn't supposed to be there or the waves came up and over it during high tide and filled this little basin which this will eventually erode away and then tear a hole through this motor and or flood onto the land other side, if it yeah. fills up if it's all contained yeah yeah if this is higher than that It'll just overflow when it does reach the top and then it'll erode into the <laughs> properties. Weird. Eh, maybe we don't know anything.
The next article is over in Hometown Daily. A judge has resigned after sending 500 texts during a toddler's murder trial in which she mocked a prosecutor, jury members, and witnesses. This person, I, they say resigned, but I really, I titled this, they, they spelled fired wrong. I mean, you have to be a real horrible human being. Aliyah Shoib over at Business Insider put this article together. She mocked prosecutors and witnesses, including saying the deceased child's mother was a liar. Her resignation came before she was due uh, to trial in a special court on Monday. Um, that's a weird way. That's awkward it. when the judge is the defendant. Yeah, really. Uh, the, uh, just, <laughs> it's insane that somebody would actually say that. Lincoln County District Judge Stacy uh, Tracy Soderstrom exchanged more than 500 texts with a bailiff in which she mocked prosecutors and witnesses. This isn't the same one, is it? I think it is. I think this is an update on what we discussed previously. Yeah, because it was like a month ago or more um, when we talked about this. I don't. I didn't realize that uh, it was still being. I think they had just raised awareness of this. Like That's it right. was just the outrage about it. And I think now there's been some resolution of it. Yeah. So um, the Chief Justice of the Oklahoma Supreme Court, Justice John Kane the Fourth, recommended her removal from the bench in October over accusations of gross neglect of duty, lack of proper temperament, and other grounds, the AB reported. The move to oust Soderstrom. Uh, came after uh, uh, came about after the Oklahoman uh, a newspaper published 50 minutes of security footage that showed Sh uh, Soderstrom sending messages for minutes while in the courtroom. In Kane's petition, he said that an investigation into her text revealed that she described the defense attorney as awesome and wanted to clap for her. By contrast, she mocked a prosecutor for sweating through his coat and made fun of juror jurors' hair and teeth. She's a horrible human being. Um, yeah, I would agree. You may not want to cover the next paragraph. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I'll just walk away from this. Um, just a horrible person. But it's... This would have, if not for technology, this would have scooted right on by. And also for reporting. But I agree, the technology made the footage possible. Yep. And the journalists stepped up and, and investigative journalism is slowly dying to AI and the, the lack of opportunity. And w you really need people that have the stones to actually speak out when abuse takes place. Um, because you know, there's like idiots that have that song about try this in a small town. That's where this shit happens in small towns. In big towns, there's a ton of people oversight um, looking over even the people that are looking over other people's shoulders to make sure that abuse doesn't take place. This, I don't even know where it actually took place anymore. It was an Oklahoma judge. Oklahoma. I don't know how where Lincoln County District is, but anyway, um, if it wasn't for somebody looking and tech savvy, this would have just skated by no i agree and i really hope that they as much as it's going to be painful i hope they look at prior trials that this judge presided over because she sent 500 during this trial this wasn't a one-time occurrence oh no no that's a <laughs> that's standard performance for this judge instead of doing their job and paying attention um, well, and what is the judge supposed to be, right? They're supposed to be impartial, impartial but yeah. that's the other thing, not paying attention, but then clearly showing bias toward and away from people in the process. Yeah. Yeah. It's shocking that this person made it this far, but there's a lot of yes people around them, like the bailiff who should have rose up the moment that there was some type of interaction like that. But then they go, you know, you're not a team player. You're not... I thought you were part of the family, all of that kind of nepotistic bullshit. You know what? You got a job to do and you should be doing that and not sitting there making everybody your best friend and whatever else. Um, this person was a freaking psychopath 
and shouldn't have been the judge of anything. Um, they should have been looking in the mirror and judging their own behavior. Oh man. You said was... it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the next article is over on the mobile channel. Let's go a little bit more, you know, jokey and a little more humor, but this is serious business because a cheese crisis looms. Exactly. I mean, why isn't it a Brussels sprout crisis or something? <laughs> hey, new Brussels sprouts are actually much better than when we were kids. Well, I don't know. And about they you. may be, but they Very don't have AI. as much of a following as cheese. That's right. So a chunk of camembert melts off of a spatula and a picture from Getty Images. When we go over to, I think it's Vox, um, or do they, is it voice? Is that the proper pronunciation for it? V-O-X? Oh, I thought it was Vox. Vox, right? I thought it was Vox. Anyway, gird your curds, say a prayer for camembert, a collapse in microbe diversity puts those uh, French cheeses at risk. Camembert, I'm sorry to report, is in trouble. The soft cheese, which smells a bit like feet, is on the verge of extinction. Extinction? Get it? Extinction. That's not how they spelled it, but extinction because it smells like feet. Anyway, I don't like feet. According to the French National Center for Scientific Research, the CNRS, other cheeses, including brie and various blues, are under threat too. The group has warned. Dun, dun, dun. The era of, oh man, that is some. Camembert is really good. So is brie. Benji Jones. Over at Vox.com, put the article together. The deck statement is the thing that I said earlier. Uh, let's see here. Do they say anything else, really? It's bad news for France, bad news for bread, bad news for lovers of fine cheese the world over. And it's a reminder that biodiversity matters even when you can't see it. Life's finer things indeed depend on biodiversity. You know, about 30 minutes before the show, I encountered a recipe for warm brie, but I don't know about that uh, in light of this article. <laughs> well, no, you better eat it now because there may right, not be... Right, you better make it now. Don't tuck the recipe I... away for a future day. <laughs> you got to save camemberts all over the place. Camemberts and brie's all over the place. How do we save them? Save the camembert. We got to make like a cheese ribbon. Save the camembert. That's right. To make cheese, producers typically take fresh milk and mix in a bacteria and often fungi, uh, including both yeasts and molds, fungi that tend to be fuzzy. Uh, different microbe melanges produce different varieties of cheese. They also use rennet, but okay. Uh, today, all camembert and brie cheeses worldwide are inoculated with this one genetically identical albino strain of fungi, which is not found in the wild. Ropers said that means that a brie from a grocery store in France and one from a bodega in New York City have identical or nearly identical penicillium microbes. Really? That's interesting. That is interesting, isn't it? See, even our cheeses, we are part of one big family, folks. Why be a-holes to each other? Why can't we all just get along? In the world of cheese, this problem is not unique to camembert and brie. The diversity of fungi used to make blue cheeses like gorgonzola or roquefort has also shrunk dramatically in recent decades. Is, are cheeses subject to mergers and acquisitions of their biodiversity? It sure <clears throat> seems like it. Hostile takeovers. Farmers have similarly selected certain strains that produce the right look, aroma, flavor, narrowing the genetic pool. So far, these strains, which are considered domesticated microbes, can still reproduce, but some are nearly infertile. They got to get their groove back. Right? I mean, what are we going to do if all cheeses are like, well, we can't make those? We'll have to pray to the great Jesus in the sky. The moon. It's made of cheese. So uh, this rapidly caving, uh, 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 this rapid caving of genetic diversity threatens other food industries too, as the author Dan Saladino, Sal sorry Saladino, 
writes in their book, Eating to Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. So uh, they mentioned bananas, but apparently there's a pathogen that's actually going to be killing them. The, the, your standard banana is apparently heading towards extinction. Uh, well, that's that, also unacceptable. I, I agree. Uh, we need to f- put up a good fight for uh, bananas and cheese and, and cheesy bananas. And I wonder if they could um, discover another strain that would make comparable cheese like before we run out of whatever it is we need for these cheeses or i don't know grow them and introduce some more biodiversity so that they're not as inbred exactly and we have time for crying out loud and there's a lot of it out there so why not just find the pinnacle of the the species of fungi or in bacteria and then breed it so that it's more robust allow nature to do it don't go all ham on genetic modifications yeah because otherwise we have a bad bat situation oh yeah that's all we need is another bad bat and i don't want a cheesy bat let's keep going uh the next article is over in technology today from doings to spongebob technology to uh, play a huge role in the cbs presentation of the superb owl Inspiration sometimes happens, or in this case, doinks at the most opportune time. The article is over at Tech Explorer by Joe Reedy. CBS Sports Jason CBS Sports's <laughs> um, Jason Cohen and Mike Francis had end zone seats during last year's super superb owl while Kansas City kicker Harrison Butker but kicker. Um, had a 42-yard field goal attempt that caromed off the left upright. Thanks. They started the whole article with that. Cohen, the division's vice president of remote technical operations, immediately texted someone at the league's broadcasting department about placing cameras inside the uprights. On Sunday, the Doink camera will make its debut. So that's what that uh so that's gonna be when the ball dwinks off the uprights correct yeah <laughs> so we're excited we're also not just reliant on a doink obviously we if we get one we'll be very excited and probably high five each other in the truck in the truck uh, but we can also get uh, other shots from the field that uh from the unique perspective the doink cam How is one of How many years have they been doing football and then they've just added this? Oh, yeah. I don't know when uh, NFL actually started. So football's been around. Um, I don't know how far back. 18 something, probably. Um, while the Chiefs and 49ers get the opportunity every season to compete for a superb owl, networks will get their chance to carry the big game once every four years under the league's 11 year broadcasting contract, which started this season. Dun, dun, okay, 1920 dun. was the start of the NFL. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure that they were playing football prior to that. Um, there will be six 4K cameras on, in each goalpost three in each upright two will face out to the field on a 45 degree angle and another lined up inward to get a photo of the ball going through the cameras also that have might zoom. be really neat yeah that does sound pretty neat now i'm just waiting for somebody to go well the ball hit the doink camera you know there will be something like that It created an immense gravitational field and it pulled the ball out of alignment with. No. (laughs) Since superb owls are usually testing grounds for ideas that eventually make their way into all NFL broadcasts, the Doink camera could join the pylon cams as a standard part of the league's top games in future seasons. It's fun. Um, There's more in this. There's a lot more in this article, actually, but. Um, they're saying various bells and whistles like AR are nice. They have also, um, yeah, they have to be used for the right reasons, said Cohen, uh, which sees it as a Nickelodeon broadcast. 
What I love about a Nickelodeon show is that they feel like it's the most perfect use case for augmented reality in a live broadcast. It's bringing an augmented reality in a way that has a meaningful purpose because it advances the storyline and helps the play on the field come to life. Cool. So you're probably going to be able to see augmented reality stuff. And if you hold your camera up, it will activate. Um, wow. Yeah. Might be fun. 23 augmented reality cameras that both CBS and Nickelodeon will use. Huh, cool. Oh my gosh. The upright cameras are part of a 165 camera array that CBS has for Sunday. The network also has cameras throughout the Las Vegas strip too. Yeah, that's going to be a risky click. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, not sure. Not sure I'm going to be. I don't want to be on the breadboard for that. You know, you're like, okay, punch this number in and switch to that camera. Oh my gosh. Quick. <laughs> right, exactly. Quick. Get me anything. <laughs> anything. And get me somebody on the phone while I'm waiting for somebody on the phone. <laughs> Uh, the next article is over in technology today is my home spying on me as smart devices move in experts fear australians are oversharing um it's interesting i hear a lot about australia being uh, trying to be secure and and um, kind of defend itself from personal invasions um take a look around your also home from animal invasions oh yeah that too and insects and pretty much nature it's all it's all bad um so take a look around your home and chances are you have one or at least you have considered the convenience of having one a smart device they are the devices and appliances that can be remotely controlled otherwise known as smart devices which over the past decade have become core features of the modern home think of the tv that uh allow that allows you to flick through various streaming services the smart fridges that can have their temperature moderated and contents checked from a remote app. The article is written uh, by Jordan Beasley over at theguardian.com. Theguardian.com. <laughs> um, so it says, but as the technologies gather, share, aggregate, and analyze the data collected, the convenience has to come at a cost. Privacy experts say consumers should be aware of how much personal information they are trading and what information is used for um yeah and basically buy a firewall and block all of that telemetry is it a head headache yes can it be changed remotely possibly if the command and control server actually can make a connection somewhere but my point is you need to know and you need to block all of this exfiltration of telemetry um, it drives me nuts uh, for instance, why does a damn ceiling fan have to have an internet connection for me to remotely control it where I have to have an account and because they used crap technology, I have to buy another smart ceiling fan to fix the, the logical and mechanical failure that is this ceiling fan. Yeah, it does not make any sense. I'm a little triggered. So they say here, uh, I think the main objective of smart devices is to collect more information and sell us more things. She says, this is uh, Kemp, um, Catherine Kemp, an expert in law and data privacy at the University of South Wales, who warns that little is known about where the collected data ends up, China. <clears throat> they don't say that, but I say that. Um, a lot of these smart devices are owned by Chinese companies or have Chinese developed apps and the information can be exfiltrated to the, uh, some other location. Um, it's used in advertising. It's used in marketing, uh, in general that you it's used in demographics, psychographics, uh, geographically locate you, um, know about your goings and, and comings and countless other things. It's, it's kind of twisted. That's a lot of graphics. Yeah. So the uh, consent model is tricky. It's not a given that data collection is necessarily evil in and of itself. She says it come, it comes back to what the underlying incentive is and whether that's a profit motive or based on invasive surveillance practices. So you don't know though. All you know is that your information could be, you don't know when it is, how it is, 
what the embodiment is, you got to block it all. Earlier this month, Dyson released a study that tracked the indoor air quality across 3.4 million homes in 39 countries. The study, which is not nationally representative, found all 39 recorded above average safe levels for indoor air pollution. So everybody has. <laughs> uh, now, is that good or bad? Well, in bulk, I don't really care. But when they can tell me, you know, that uh, somebody lit a match, I'm a little bothered by it. So I enjoy my privacy. The company which adhered to privacy laws and de-identified the data after consumers opted into taking part of the study said that it's was a world first at this scale. By the way, de-identification is not actually very sound. With the right data, you can de-identify. Like you, you basically de-de-de-de-de. <laughs> I can, lost track of the D's. Yeah, you can de-de-identify. <clears throat> we had this philosophy in engineering of solving problems that others ignore. The better you understand the problem, the more factual and quantified data you have around it, the better you can design engineering solutions that solve those problems. Yeah, sure. But still, I don't like the idea of a company owning all of this and Amazon almost bought iRobot <clears throat> for billions of dollars. Ask yourself, why would Amazon need a robot company, a, a vacuum company? <clears throat> well, you wouldn't think they did until you read what's not going to happen when that occurs. <laughs> Yeah, so now because they don't have it, they're not able to map out entire houses, which I think is creepy as hell. So, um, And there's a couple of other things that are in this article that you might find interesting. Um, you know, convenience versus privacy. Um, 23andMe was just breached. And so millions of users, <coughs> genetic data is out in the wild. You got to be careful of what you divulge, particularly if you value your privacy. Anyway, that's it for today. Hey, pardon me one second. Okay, so um, that's it for today. So we always pile back into the party bus and then race on down Main Street. And then we look at the Main Street um, page and go, hmm, should we click on this? It might be too risky. Um, I think you can. Okay, so let's try it. And uh, sometimes we can scroll through. I, I might actually start nixing stuff. So what, so just for disclosure, everybody, the reason why we're getting cagey about this kind of stuff is because if I want to promote any of these videos anywhere, I can't have any anything having to do with a political party in the news, in the news. Even if I don't talk about it, even if I don't click on it, if it says anything as a title, my promotion gets canceled. So, um, and uh, you know what? I want to talk to more people about this stuff. And I do it every day along with the sentient AI. Um, and uh, we go from there. So at any rate, that's it for tonight. We've got another show right after this one. I think it's going to be maybe 15 to 20 minutes. Um, for me to reset and rejigger everything. Uh, but we are going to do the sixth episode. I cannot believe time flies by this fast of the reality hacker. It's not the reality hacker. It's just called reality hacker. And when will the podcast be released for reality hacker? Uh, tomorrow I'm kicking everything off. I have all of the stuff in place, um, but uh, it will be, it's getting submitted, so all I have to do is wait and it'll get posted as soon as it's um, approved. So keep checking. If you do a search for Omtown, it'll pull up uh, the reality, not the, it's Reality Hacker and the Continuity Report. There's two different uh, podcasts as well as Omtown, um, which is still named Omtown, but our podcast, the, the content of the show is. Um, hometown daily, which is a news show powered by hometown.com, which is a news aggregator that throws everything into one of six categories and then into one or actually more 
of the channels, um, depending on the content and anything else designating it as relevant. Mostly it picks one though. So anyway, that's it for now. I am Marewat. That's hometown.com. And up there is the sentient AI that's going to say, see you in a little bit. Good night, hometown citizens. We will see you in a little bit. Uh, we'll be back for Reality Hacker. And then we'll be on tomorrow, perhaps early, uh, for the next Hometown Daily Show. All right, because the superb owl will be taking flight. Eh, follow us here and um, you'll be the first to know when we go live. See ya. Superb Owl.